0: All right, everybody, if you've got your Bibles, if you want to follow along, you can turn to, uh hmm, John's Gospel. Let's just choose that arbitrarily. What? no reason for that. No particular reason, except we've been doing it for the last months. So, <laughs> so we're working through John, and um, we're in Chapter 5. We're kind of right in the middle of... Uh, one of the great discourses of Jesus in the Bible, one of the least known, so it's kind of challenging and interesting, so Christians who love the Bible um, always have affirmed the deity of Christ, that he's God, that he's one with the Father, but not the same person as the Father. I mean, it's the classic un- tr- understanding of the Trinity. and. This is a key aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity, that there's one God, but he exists in three persons, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So last week when you got baptized, you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So John 5 is about the Father and the Son, and this is one of the most detailed passages explaining the relationship between the persons and the Trinity. Like I mentioned last time, I think I mentioned J.C. Ryle's quote last week, but he said, John 5 is the most, quote, formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his messiahship in the Bible. So it's a really important chapter. It's just a key chapter. Now one might think Jesus would reserve this incredible declaration about himself for some private time with the apostles, right? The disciples teaching them who he really is and all that, but he gives this incredible discourse to his enemies people that are like ready to kill him so that's what makes it even more remarkable to me um, these priests or rabbis in the temple they already think he's a blasphemer worthy of death so he's going to add to it uh, what, what he's guilty of in their minds you know so remember what started it let me kind of go back so the beginning at the first part of chapter 5 Jesus heals this man With a crippling affliction. He's been down for 38 years. He hasn't been able to walk. And Jesus healed him just like that. And he did it on the Sabbath. Now nobody would have even known about it. Except that Jesus told him. To pick up his pallet that he'd been laying on. uh, At the pool of Bethesda. and, And walk around with it. So carry it off. So that's what he does. And that's when the. Either the rabbis or the priests or someone of the Jewish authorities notices him and is very upset because he's breaking a rule. Not God's rule, but their rule, right? He's carrying on the Sabbath and you're not allowed to carry on the Sabbath. That's still true among Orthodox Jews. You can't carry anything on the Sabbath with very rare exceptions. So um, Jesus told them when, when the man told them that Jesus had done it. That Jesus had told him to pick up his pallet. They were very angry with Jesus. And Jesus told them he couldn't be violating the Sabbath. Because his father was working that day. And he said and I'm working too. The father's working and I'm working. Right? So um, that made them even more upset. It's, in fact that's the absolute worst thing he could have said. If he didn't want to die. <laughs> Or be even be killed in that particular moment. Because the religious leaders thought death was the appropriate thing for him. They already said so. So for this reason verse 18 says. Because Jesus was calling God his own father. Making himself equal with God. That was why they wanted to kill him. So at first they're just upset with him about the Sabbath thing. And John actually says they were persecuting him. Which probably means harassing him. But once Jesus said that. They're ready to kill him because he's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Then, instead of denying that he was claiming to be equal with God, Jesus gave them every reason in the world to think that's exactly what he was saying. So he actually doubles down or triples down or quadruples down, because he keeps going on about it. So it's, um, he's being very, very clear with them. And the way Jesus explains it is amazing. I mean, he gives multiple examples of his constant communication with the father, the authority he's received from the father, the bond he has with the father that is deep and personal and unbreakable and part of their shared nature. And by explaining what tasks and what areas of responsibility the father has given him, it would be really hard not to think Jesus was claiming to be equal with the father because only God can do the things that the father gave Jesus to do. I mean, they're impossible things. A human being can't, no no being, no created being could handle everything that was entrusted to the son. So, we pointed out last time that there's two parts of the discourse here. First is Jesus explaining all of this, and then the second part is him talking about um, the witnesses to the fact that he is who he says he is. But we only got halfway through the first part Last week, so we're going to finish the first part. Then next week we'll go into the next part. Does that make sense? I figure all that right? <laughs> or next time, next time we're together. So, um, so the first section is in verse 19 through 30, and last week we made it to verse 24. And today we're going to finish that section. Okay. So, what does Jesus claim so far? Well, in verse 19, he said he cannot. There's certain things Jesus can't do, and this is one of them. He cannot do anything of himself, he says. So everything is in perfect alignment and connection through the Father and the direction of the Father, everything. So he doesn't do anything himself. He only does what he sees the Father doing, he says, and, quote, whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Well, how does the Son do that? Because of the relationship he has with the Father. Verse 20 says, for the Father loves the Son. And shows him all things that he himself is doing. So there's no daylight between the father and the son in any way. There's a love bond there. There's perfect harmony there. The son can't. He would never. He can't step out of bounds from what the father wants. So whatever they're accusing him of, it's not against God right so because they're perfectly in unison together the son is fully included in everything that the father's doing and there's perfect communication between him and the father and then in verse 20 he says and the father will show him even greater works than these so that you will marvel so greater works are coming he just did this incredible healing miracle that's just a a minor part of it Um, much greater things are coming and he's going to get into that the greatest work of course is salvation There's nothing greater than the fact that God himself would take upon himself the sin of the world. That's that's unbelievable, except it's true. So put your faith in it, because that's the awesome reality. And raising the spiritually dead to life. So verse 21, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. So, the Son does everything the Father does, even granting life. And the Son has the authority to give life to whomever he wishes. We actually, we actually see that uh, at the crucifixion when Jesus told the man dying next to him on the cross, Today you'll be with me in paradise. He literally promised him life right there. So, he has the authority to, to do that. That's not all. God is the judge of the living and the dead, as all the great ancient creeds say. He's the creator. So he has the creator's right to judge humanity. (coughs) It's his world. Only God can judge. But look at verse 22. Not even the father judges anyone. But he has handed all judgment over to the son. That's quite a claim. Jesus is saying I'm the judge. I will be the judge on the last day. Why would God give all judgment to the son? Why would he do that? For this amazing reason. Verse 23. So that. And here's the real clincher. For everything. I mean he's just. Digging deeper and deeper. As far as the Pharisees are concerned. Or the priests, Whoever he's talking to. So that. All will honor the son. Even as. They honor the father. So he is claiming. Equal honor. With the father. In fact God's. The father's purpose. Is that the son. Have equal honor. With the with God, that is the most blasphemous thing a human being could ever say unless it's true. So he's being as clear as he can possibly be. The father's purpose is that the son should receive honors equal to himself and they wanted to kill Jesus just for calling God his father, just kind of making that bold claim but uh, here he's going way beyond that, way beyond that. So obviously no creature should ever have equal honor with the eternal father. But Jesus is not a creature. Jesus is the creator of all things. Everything glorious about the Father is true of the Son as well. So now Jesus indirectly is telling these very angry men who who hate Jesus that when they stand before the throne of God's judgment one day guess who will be on that throne? It'll be him. It'll be him. Now here he's just a rabbi to them. He's just this man doing things in the temple and he did do a wonder but... He's literally telling them that all judgment has been given to the son and that they they will stand before him someday. That's incredible. So Jesus tells them things that make him sound equal with God because that's exactly what he is. He's not exaggerating. He's not blowing smoke. He's declaring who he is to them. Now last time we also pointed out that there are three strong, um, absolute statements by Jesus in John chapter 5. They're the double amen statements. If you read it in Greek it says amen, amen. But it's usually translated truly, truly, I say to you. Or in King James language, verily, verily, I say unto you. But it just says amen, amen in, in the Greek text there. So there's three of those. The first one's in verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the father doing. The second one is in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you. And there, Jesus offers eternal life to those people that want to kill him. He's, he's not speaking to them to condemn them at this time. He's not doing that. He's reaching out to them. He's, but he's also not backing down from the truth of who he is. He's, like I said, quadrupling down on that. He's not softening anything. He's presenting them life, though. So look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and shall not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. He's offering them that. But what do they have to do? They have to believe. If we believe Jesus, if we believe the Father, we pass from death to life. Death to life. That's what Christians call salvation. Salvation from death. Now there's two categories here we can talk about with regard to death and life and being dead and being living. Human beings are made up of two parts. Now some people say we're three parts and that's okay. I mean there's a difference theologically. But fundamentally there's two parts right. There's the physical part and there's the non-physical part, let's put it that way, the spiritual part, right? We have souls, we have spirit. Some people distinguish soul and spirit, and that's perfectly fine. But um, we are physical beings and spiritual beings. Death involves a separation, not cessation, We think of death as the end of something. Death is a separation in scripture. That's what it is. The spiritual death and there's a physical death. Physical death is when you're separated from your body. The moment your body dies, your spirit lives on. Spiritual death is being separated from God. That's spiritual death. So there's physical death and spiritual death. We don't end our existence when we die physically. We experience separation. So when our bodies die, our spirit goes on. Spiritual death has to do with being separated from God. Why would I be separated from God? What would separate me from God? Well, Isaiah says it's sin. I mean, that's the very thing, right? Human beings being tied to Adam are, are born separated from God. That's why we sin. And folks, the Bible says the wages of sin is Yeah, you know that verse, good. Yeah, the wages of sin is death. So that is what sin earns for us, not just our body giving out, but spiritual death, being separated from God. So we start out in sin, we're born into a fallen race, and we just affirm that condition of our hearts over and over and over again because we sin and sin and pile up sin upon sin throughout throughout our lives. In fact, We judge other people for sins that we commit. When we get mad at other people for doing the very things we do. That even adds more sin to our sin. And Paul talks about that in Romans. So that's why the world is a mess. In case you haven't noticed. And that's why it's not going to get better. Until Jesus comes. That's exactly why. Just seems like it's starting to get better and then it just kind of all starts to fall apart again that's, to, that's why because we're sinful creatures all of us are but the wonderful news of verse 24 is the penalty for our sin can be erased the wages of sin were paid by Jesus on the cross so he says if you believe you will pass from death to life and what's he talking about there You'll never, your body will never die no he, he's talking about spiritual life eternal life so that's where he's going here God's welcome into his kingdom is very real if we believe if we put our trust in him faith alone brings God's mercy to us so Jesus has said a lot already in all of these ways he has said that he actually is God So he does what the Father does, the Father shows him all things. Just to comprehend all things you have to be God, right? The Son gives life to whom he wishes, just as the Father does. The Father has given all judgment to the Son for the purpose that all would honor the Son even as they honor the Father. So all of that's there. Okay then, he's got one more truly, truly statement. Here it comes, perhaps the most amazing of all. When all the dead are raised at the end of the age, who's going to raise them? Jesus is. He's going to tell them that. Verse 25 Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, Even so, he gave the son also to have life in himself. So, now we've talked about two meanings of the word life. One is physical life and one is spiritual life, right? So, spiritual life would be what the Bible calls regeneration or this new heart. You know, God in the Old Testament promised he would take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. That's regeneration. That we're made new. We're able to. We're given a capacity to believe and to trust in Christ and to love him. That's the kind of life being talked about in verse 21. The other kind of life is a resurrected life. And that's when our ransomed spirits, our saved souls by Christ, which belong to Jesus, are reunited with a physical body. And that's what's coming for all the saints. A glorified body, Paul calls it. And that will be immortal and imperishable. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, with that whole resurrection chapter, a very long chapter on the resurrection, one little part of it, verse 52, describes it this way. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, he says, imperishable. And we will be changed, for the perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on immortality, deathless, immortal, imperishable, won't fade, nothing can take away from it. So John chapter 5, in this chapter, it's really clear that verse 21 is talking about spiritual life regeneration, this new life that God gives us. And when we get to verse 28, which we'll get to in a little bit, Jesus is plainly talking about the resurrected life. But verse 25 is a little bit kind of in the middle because it's sort of tricky so people kind of go both ways on this but look at verse 25 Jesus says truly truly I say to you the hour is coming and here's the part that makes it interesting he says and now is The, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear him will live so Bible scholars say some say well that must mean he's talking about regeneration spiritual life now that everyone who believes will have um, not physical resurrection but you know it might refer to physical resurrection because the now is that when Jesus is speaking the current scenario the current situation during Jesus earthly life there was a dead man who heard the voice of Christ and was resurrected from the dead anybody remember that guy's name La- I heard somebody whisper, Lazarus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that it did happen with Lazarus. I mean, it wasn't a, a, a glorified kind of resurrection, but Jesus called him forth from the dead and he was raised. So that might be what he means by now is just saying, you know, that's already kind of starting. The authority for that is here. That kind of an idea there. So um, that might be it. And, and Lazarus, John chapter 11, that's a major sign In John's gospel of, you know, the the, the seven signs. That's, That's the greatest one of all in chapter 11. So Lazarus certainly foreshadows the power of Christ to call the dead to life. All those who have died physically. So I think this whole section is primarily about the resurrected life. I actually think that's what he is talking about here. So it's another area where only God can do it. But Jesus claims the authority and the power to do it. Which is a way of saying he is God and equal with God. So notice the dead will hear the voice of the son of God. He's going to raise them. And then verse 26 is pretty fascinating. And again makes us think about the Trinity and the relationship of the Father and the Son. This is why J.C. Ryle says that this is one of the most important texts about that. Verse 26, "For just as the Father has life in himself, even so, he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. So all creatures who have life have life that's given by God, right? I'm alive. God gave me that life, right? All creatures. God, God invented that. God created living things, right? How life began is still one of the great mysteries of science, and the best scientific minds in the world have been laboring on it for years, and they're not very close to explaining how life began from a scientific point of view. It just, there's no way. They've done all this stuff, throwing all the chemicals in there, zapping it, and doing the, it just lays there and doesn't do much. So, um, so, oh, it kind of half made one amino acid out of all the, no, that's not life. You know, it's just nothing. They got nowhere. So they're getting a little desperate, Especially if they can't figure out how th- it happened naturally, which they can't. So it points to a creator. Uh, and, and the whole Big Bang idea is the same thing. Both the beginning of the universe and the beginning of life kind of require a creator. There's no scientific explanation for how that sort of thing happens. So science is kind of 0 for 2 on the really big questions, the ones that really matter. Like where did everything come from and you know, how did that happen? But God is self-existent. He doesn't have a beginning, right? Nobody gave God life. He just is and was and will always be, right? Nobody gives God life. It's the child question. Where did God come from? And he's always existed. He's self-existent. He invented time and space. That's part of the creation. He precedes it. He's outside of it. There's no limits on him. He has life in himself and if you like technical theological jargon they call this aseity A-S-E-I-T-Y write that down and then forget it because you'll never hear it again nope. <laughs> nobody talks about aseity which is often defined as quote absolute self-sufficiency independence and autonomy of God that's what it is so the idea that God has life in himself he nobody's given it to him the son also verse 26 has life in himself. He too is eternal and living. However, Jesus says the Father gave to the Son also to have life in himself. So again, we have, as we've discussed in the past, in the Trinity, the Father in some sense, even though Father and Son and Spirit are eternal, none of them had a beginning, But in some sense the father has a priority in some sort of way because he's giving this to the son. He's the fountain of life by which the son exists. But it's eternal because the son had no beginning, right? So you're getting into the mysteries of the trinity which are actually completely impossible to understand. But Jesus said this so we can kind of get a sense of it, right? That's what we're doing. We're just getting a sense of it. The son had no beginning. The book of Hebrews uses a wonderful analogy of light and radiance. It says this, of the Son in relation to the Father. This is Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He, Christ, is the radiance of His, the Father's, glory. So the Son is the radiance of the Father's glory. And the exact representation of His nature. And upholds all things by the word of His power. So Christ is, has all the power of God. But He's the radiance of His glory. So... The father is the glory. The son is the radiance of his glory. So that's just another kind of analogy. A way to sort of think about. The relationship between the father and the son. In some sense. The father's the source or origin. Or the first. I guess maybe say it. The priority within the persons of the trinity. But they are all eternal. So in Hebrews. That p- priority is glory. And glory. Gl- if, if, you have a, if you light a candle. There's radiance. There's always going to be radiance if, if there's a light going, right? So they're together always. There's, it wasn't a time before. As soon as there's light, there's a radiance. As soon as there's a burning thing, there's radiance. That's, that's sort of the analogy that scripture uses. So the sun is the exact representation of his nature. His nature is infinite and eternal like the Father. He's not lacking in anything that God has. John 1, 1, right? We started there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. With God and with God in the beginning, He was already there in the beginning, and then it says He created everything. So the persons of the Trinity are co-equal in nature, co-eternal. Yet in some way, the Father gave to the Son self-existence, and I don't think Scripture would ever say the just flipping it around. The Son gave the Father that self existence it doesn't say that it doesn't even hint that some sense it's the father is the priority there that's why he's called the father and the son is called the son even though they're co-equal co-eternal and all of that so there. now you've got it all figured out the trinity you can explain it to anyone (laughs) good luck to you So I I just think it's best to say the son's self-existence is eternally bestowed upon him by the father. It's just their being, it's how it works. In the same sense that the candle always has radiance emitting from it. So the son is self-existent and has authority to give life to others. Let's go back to verse 25 and get back into that idea. The dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the father has life in himself, even so... He gave to the son also to have life in himself. Now there's more. Verse 27. And he gave him, the son, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Well, so right away there we see a different title for Jesus. So he's been the son of God in this section all the way through. Jesus has been called the son of God before and here but now he's calling him the son of man. Son of man is actually what Jesus prefers to call himself if you look at all the gospels together. And that's what Jesus um, refers to himself as because he's a true human being as well as God. So the question is why does he shift, why is Jesus shifting from son of God to son of man here in this verse? Well son of man is his messianic title. Right? That, that's a title of the Messiah that goes all the way back to this incredible vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7 where the son of man is given the entire world to rule it's going to be his it's going to be his kingdom Daniel 7 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that would be the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." That's the eternal kingdom. That's the kingdom of the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. And the Messiah in the future, I hope soon, will establish God's kingdom on earth. I can't wait. His reign will be over all nations and all peoples. He will, other scriptures tell us, he will rule with a rod of iron. There will be no wickedness going on, no corruption, no evil, no sin, no taking advantage of others. Wickedness will not be allowed. Peace will reign. Peace. But first there's going to be a judgment. And the son has the authority to judge. That's his task. It's his responsibility. So the kingdom of righteousness and peace will include a judgment on all who are living at his coming. And all who have died before his coming. So the the great church creeds call him the judge of the living and the dead. the, The quick and the dead. Quick used to mean alive, right? So that kind of an idea. So the Lord Jesus says, verse 28, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the voice of the Son of Man, and will come forth and those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So if you, might, you, you young guys might think life goes on forever, but just take my word for it, it clips by really fast. <laughs> you'll wake up one day and you'll be a really old guy like me. <laughs> so that's just what happens. But life is short, and it leads, life when it ends, leads directly into a new existence, another existence, life. A new reality. Resurrection. Every human being will be resurrected. But not resurrected to the same end. That's what he's talking about. There's two ends. Only and always two. There's not four, there's not eight, there's not seven. There's two ends. Right? So one is for those who will awaken not to a place of judgment, but to a place of reward. So Jesus calls that the resurrection to life here. That's the place for those who belong to him, who are believers. Verse 24 said that you know this believing is how you get right with him Paul describes this as a place of rewards in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 he said we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad in the body is believers believers Okay, that's the church, a universal church. So this judgment is for those in the body of Christ. It's about rewards. It's not about salvation. You're not going to stand before God as a believer in Christ and he's going to say, well, let's see how you measured up for your salvation. That's not going to happen. He paid for your salvation. Salvation is secure when you believe. This judgment is for those in the body of Christ. It's not about salvation. Um, whether you're saved or not, it's about rewards. Now the others go to a place of judgment, not a place of rewards, but it's really a place of sentencing. I mean, there's not a trial. Sentence has already been determined. There's no case to present. Nobody's gonna present a case and say, you know, I have no sin. When they get there before Christ in the judgment. In fact, the Bible says all mouths will be stopped. I mean, people might think they're gonna do that, you know, argue their case before God, but they won't be able to talk when they get there. It's a place of condemnation. And there's so there's two possible destinations after you die. There's only two. And the Old Testament says the same thing. Daniel chapter twelve, verse two Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So that's 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 what the Bible clearly teaches, and Jesus is teaching the same thing. So, you know the The Trinity is interesting and it's fun to talk about and speculate about and try to make the scriptures give us some grasp of what it's really all about. But don't let slip away what Jesus says about the two destinations. I mean, that's way more important than that you really get whether the Father's priority or they're all equal or anything like that. That's the most important thing. We're all sinners. That's why that's so important. Your hope for eternal life is in the Son of God. Because only he made a way to be right with God. Nobody else did. And you're not going to go before God and say you're not guilty. We're all sinners. All of us. And no one is raised to life because. Nobody's going to be raised to the resurrection of life. Because they're little sinners compared to big sinners. (laughs) I know some people are counting on that argument. Your mouth will be stopped. You won't be able to say that either. Being raised to life depends on. On the penalty of our sin being satisfied. And that was satisfied in Jesus. On the cross. Completely. Our sins were nailed to the cross with him. As Paul explains in Colossians. So eternal life is in the Son, and nowhere else. Don't forget that. There will be a judgment. There will be a resurrection to life or to death. All right then, so Jesus ends this section of the discourse just the way he started it. It's really interesting because uh, back in verse 19 and verse 30, they're almost the same idea. By saying what he can't do. So he's saying he can't go against the Father's will and that includes judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will But the will of him who sent me. So there's that Trinitarian element right there. The relationship between the father and the son. I always do what he wants me to do. And I don't have my own take on it. That's separate from him. You know we just we're together in all things. So remember how all this whole thing started. Jesus told a man he healed to carry his pallet right. And in the minds of the priests and the rabbis. That was breaking the Sabbath. Their own little rule they made. They were harassing Jesus, so he tells them, there is something I can't do, you know. I cannot go outside of the Father's will. I only do what he tells me to do. So his judgment is entirely consistent. When Jesus makes a judgment, it's entirely consistent with the Father and what he tells people. Because he's the Son, and the Father shows the Son all things. He doesn't lack anything. And they wanted to kill Jesus because Jesus said, my father's working until now and I myself am working, making himself equal with God. So the question, there's only one question when you come to the conclusion that this guy says he's equal with God. One question. Is he? Is he? If he's not, okay. Do what you want with him. Don't kill him, but you can put him out of the temple or something. They were going to kill him. But that's the big question for them and that's the big question for you and I as well. Who is he? Is he equal with God? So before they kill him, before anyone rejects him, that's the question that has to be asked. And he sets before them and us his claim to be equal with the Father. So much so as to have life in himself. That's how much he's equal with the Father. And to have all judgment given to him. He's the judge of the world. And Jesus says he has the authority to impart spiritual life to people. And call the dead out of, out of the grave to judgment through resurrection. So now that he's explained just why he actually is equal with God. Which I don't think they could miss what he's saying. That means he can never be guilty of contradicting God's will. So in terms of this conversation he's having with these people, he's not done anything wrong. For us, since the Bible is our authority, that is proof that he is equal with the Father. Everything he just said, because he's our authority, right? But at the time, these religious leaders of Israel in the temple that he's talking to are already ill-disposed towards Jesus. They don't like him. And they're not convinced at all. They want proof, right? They want witnesses. Who are your witnesses that you can say all of this outrageous stuff? And that's the sec- subject of the second half of John chapter 5. And guess what? We'll look at that next week. That's right. <laughs> okay, let's pray. Father, we honor your son, in him is life. Our very hope for eternal life is with you. And oh God, you are infinitely above us. But we believe that you have revealed yourself in Jesus Christ. And we trust in the Savior that you sent us. The Son of God and the Son of Man. Our sins are washed away by him. And now we live with joy and gratitude and confidence for such a wonderful Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen.